thank you, Bridge Community, for joining us again for another podcast from Bridge the Divide. Um, we have been out of the net for a little bit. We hope you didn't forget about us, but we're still here nestled in the uh, Cedarburg Public Library for some good conversation, we hope. Um, this is Erica. Heidi cannot be with us today, but I did call on some more friends to hang out with us so we won't be lonely. And today, surprise, surprise, we are going to talk about race. Oh, who knew? Bridge the Divide talking about race. What we're going to try to, to um, work through today and kind of wrestle with is why is it so hard for people to talk about race? Are they afraid? Are they afraid of the people? Are they afraid of the conversation? What is it that makes it so difficult to talk about race? So that's where we'll kick off our show today. And I wanna introduce you to our guests and just I'll just let you know who they are. And guests, you can feel free to say whatever it is you like about yourselves, introduce yourselves to our community. Um, like I said, my name is Erica. I'm the executive director of Bridge the Divide. And the friends that I have today, I have Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Thank you Hi. for coming. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, we have Sharon. Sharon, thanks for coming. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And then we have um, Elisa, who's rounding out our uh, friends on our virtual couch today. Hey, Elisa. Hello. It's good to be with you all. <laughs> In the background, we have our lovely producer, Jeff, who is the one that makes our show possible here at CPL Radio. So shout out to Jeff. Thank you so much. Um, so ladies, we just happen to have ladies in the conversation today. What is it that you think makes people afraid? Well, do you think it's fear that we don't talk about race? Why is it so difficult? And I feel it's difficult because we've tried to open this forum to talk to people, not only people who think the same way you do, but it's so difficult to get people to come to this table. Why is that? What do you think? Well, I can speak for one group. Um, I'm from Marquette University, just recently retired, where I worked with the teacher education program. Um, and my students, as they were preparing to be teachers, were pretty informed about a lot of things about race, racial equity in education and society. And they were terrified to talk about it in their classrooms with their kids. Um, and as I probed it, why are you so scared, guys? One of the things that just kept coming through, they were really, <laughs> the word, they are really well-intended. They really wanted to, um, but they knew just enough to know that they were very likely going to say something that was wrong, mm -hmm. that was offensive. And I, I think that is a category of, especially the people who want to be involved, who do care, and then they just like, am ah, up <laughs> in that moment that they may say something that's offensive and not realize it until it comes out, or maybe not even realize it at all until someone points it out to them. Right. Um, and for my young, young students, that was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And my advice to them was, well, of course, you're going to say something stupid. Do it anyway. You know? Exactly. <laughs> that's it. That's the one. That's the one I like. I've heard the, the Glennon Doyle quote about fear. If you can't get over your fear, then do it scared. If you make a mistake, practice the art of the apology and keep going. But we need mm -hmm. people moving forward in this, not mm -hmm. stopping with what doesn't feel good, right? Especially if you're that well-intentioned person. I want to mm -hmm. do right. I want to do well. If I can't do it well, I'll just stop because I'll mess it up. No, please yeah. don't stop. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think too, like, um, like the same kind of themes that like uphold white supremacy of like perfectionism or like white supremacy culture, like that, those same things are tied to like this um, unwillingness or fear, if you want to, whatever way you want to describe it to mess up, you know, that's those things like coexist together. And so I think that is like a huge part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And don't we mess up in other parts of our lives? Like we can't, we can't do everything else perfectly. And we feel like it's okay in other things to mess up or, or get feedback or some Mm -hmm. critique, Mm -hmm. even if it's hard, you do it at work. You don't Mm -hmm. just love somebody telling you you're not doing something the best, but you Mm -hmm. take it and then you modify. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I think it's good to encourage uh, humility with that, you know, so I don't have all the answers. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. Um, I'm going to be ignorant, but Mm -hmm. I, I, I care about this issue. I care about other people, but I think it's, it's okay to say, you know, just come with a little humility um, and, and prayer. That helps. Yeah. <laughs> and that helps with the grace too, right, Elisa? So right. if I'm the person that's the listener and I have engaged in this conversation because I want to have it, then I, I got to give a little bit of grace to myself and also to that other person as they're sticking said foot in said mouth to, mm-hmm. to not necessarily, you know, jump at them right away. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how to how to how you temper it because it doesn't mean that I just let you offend me willy-nilly because I, I you know you aren't sure and I've corrected you and you do it again or we've read something together and you do it again and you do it again so I don't think it means I don't have to ever correct you again or I just have to grin and take it if I want to have the conversation mm-hmm. so you know balancing that out is kind of mm-hmm. difficult that's where the humility comes in though you have to realize to be open to to listen to the other person yeah Mm -hmm. i worked with a a woman a teacher down in illinois years ago and um, she was very active in in uh just anti-racist work in the school um and i said how how do you feel when someone points out that you've you've really said something offensive. You've really, you've really betrayed a, a racist attitude you didn't even know was there. How do you feel? And I'll never forget, she said, I feel like I was in the dark and somebody turned on the light. Mm. I feel like I was sick and now I'm starting to get better. Um, and I've tried to, uh, you know, try to hold on to that because quite honestly, when I, when I do it and I do um, and I get called on it, oh my gosh, it feels terrible. You know, it just feels terrible. But then you think about it and sometimes sometimes the treatment for getting well does feel terrible. That's <laughs> right. And so just moving in that direction. Um, but I really appreciate what you're saying too, Erica, about it's not, you know, it's not by any means being a, a doormat uh, if you're the person who's been offended because that would, that would get us nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, a thing that I often like, have like when I especially if I'm going to engage in a conversation with a white person in particular about race I usually start with a like what's helpful to help start with like okay let, let's deconstruct this like binary of what is like of being a racist person and non-racist person because 
we like believe like, oh, that person is racist and that person is not racist. And exactly um, what Sharon is saying, similarly, like I would like very much consider myself uh, striving towards anti-racism, but I too still make mistakes and I still need that grace and I still need to have that humble heart. And that in itself, like I have to be an embodiment of like racist and unracist and be okay with that in between. And I think when people are hearing that like, oh, she's not going to quickly just be like, you know, I'm racist or like, I'm, I can at least deconstruct this idea that like, that by the end of this conversation, this person could even, will not label me either racist or unracist. It kind of lets them like settle down a little bit because it's like, it's that fear. Like it's that fear of being like, well, exactly what Sharon's saying with her students. Like, you know, like they are, are, scared of saying something wrong or doing something wrong and it's that like shame piece and that like and that it's that same good and bad binary that it needs to be deconstructed with humility as well it's like you know we are more than just good and bad we are more than more than just like anti-racist or and or racist like we in the, in that shame piece needs to be dealt with as well like okay like you know what 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 can we do if we do say something racist? Where can we where can we you know move with grace and humility in that, and also reduce harm and apologize if needed? Um, so yeah, right. I I like if Heidi. I'm going to embody Heidi as if she was here because if she were here, she would say, you know, that we've got to sit in that tension, and that tension is an uncomfortable place. You want it resolved. You want to, you know, to, to go back to Sharon's analogy of, of the, um, of a, a health issue, you know, you, if you are ill and there is some virus invading your body, your body is going to increase the temperature to try to kill it. You know, you're going to have the chills. You're going to feel fatigued because your body is putting all in to fight it, but you know, at the other end of that, things are going to get better. So while we are having fevers and chills and discomfort you know we want it to end and I feel like some people think the way to end it is you just back away backpedal backpedal from the whole conversation they're not concerned with getting through those feelings because there is a place past those things it may not be perfect you know to Hannah's point we may not automatically then be anti-racist but you do have to go through it to get over there and the discomfort and the tension and the, the unknown of what it looks like on the other side, some mm-hmm. fear, some, you know, it, sh- it, it shouldn't be shame in my opinion, but you can't say how somebody else feels. That's how they feel. But how do we get then through that? Because something's on the other side. Yeah. And I think what I'm hearing too is it's normalizing. It's normalizing that it's hard, normalizing that it's going to be uncomfortable, normalizing you're going to make mistakes. And, and I like what you said about you got to go through it. And I would also add to that, the conflict itself is where the growth happens. Yeah. In other words, if we didn't have that tension, if we didn't have those moments of like, oh, oh no, our growth would be less, our healing would be less. And so um, we got to go through it, but we also, some kind of crazy way, we need to welcome it and say, ah, oh, now I get to grow. Oh, now there's can be progress because it hurts this bad. So I like that. Yeah. I was thinking a little bit about oh situations in our family when we have to deal with something difficult. Maybe um, it's an issue of violence, or maybe it's an issue of addiction. And uh, enabled 
if you're going to deal with that, you have to be very honest and it takes a lot of intentionality. And, you know, I think with racism, that's a situation where there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain and, um, you need to be able to deal with that in an honest way. And I think we're gonna, if we ever are going to move forward, we have to be able to, to, to deal with that pain and recognize that that is not wholeness. You know, I don't think um, we as individuals can't be a whole, uh, can't be whole ourselves, but I think as, um, our society, we can't be whole unless we address it. But there's fear with that. I mean, nobody likes to deal with the pain of, of some of those things. Mm -hmm. I, I like that, that conversation about the pain and the healing. There are times when even though I welcome this conversation and I'm pushing mm -hmm. for people to have it, mm -hmm. there is, there is the, the trauma, there is the pain of having these experiences and having to to prove your whole human self <laughs> is worthy to another person and having those conversations is painful and to have somebody that's gaslighting you or minimizing your experiences mm -hmm. adds to the pain so mm -hmm. i can certainly understand why um you know i i, I think i say it every show Black people are not a monolith. So I am here speaking to you as Erica, Black woman Christian that lives in Ozaki County. I, I understand why a Black woman would not want to come to this conversation. Yeah. Like I, for, for what, what do I get out of mm -hmm. having this conversation with you? And it's not all, you know, selfishness. Like if I can't get anything out of it, I don't want to have the conversation. But I get hurt in that conversation more often and for the 17th trillion time. <laughs> so why exactly would yeah. I wanna put myself out there again so that you can use me to learn and to bounce offensiveness off of to see how offensive it is at any given time. So then I can leave crawling away, hurt and beaten down again and somebody else walk away going, hey, that was pretty good. I think I grew, I think, I, I think I'm a little bit better for this and I'm just the worst for wear. So I understand why, you know, a black woman would not want to come to this conversation. I, I, I don't want to have it. It's, it's painful. And I, somebody else is growing at my expense and I don't know how often I want to do that or how long I want to do that. Yeah. yeah. So if it's, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sharon. Just, just the importance of white people talking to white people about stuff. And, really and that was good. That was going to be my next question then. So in this conversation about the fear and the discomfort, I am always the black person in the conversation. <laughs> so is it different if it's white people talking to themselves? Because we are in, like I said, I'm in Ozaki County. We are mostly talking about the suburbs. So if a suburb is going to be 70, 80, 90% white, in order for those conversations to happen, it has to be white people talking to other white people. Are those conversations any easier to have? Sometimes I wonder if it's me, like am, am I having the conversation with someone and I am the cause of their fear or their angst? And if they were talking to another white person, maybe it would be easier, but is that true? Or am I making that up? I make things up sometimes, so it's okay. 
my experience is that when white people are together without any people of color around them, um, the guardrails come off and um, things are said that would never be said in a racially mixed group, um, which on one hand makes it harder because you're, you're I mean, you're really getting the, the raw that people have to offer. Um, it also, I suppose, makes more entry points to, to, to challenge, to, to question, to, you know, well, why, why, why do you think that, you know, <laughs> that kind of graceful question before you begin to inject some other perspectives or other information that might be missing. Um, but I, I really do know, I mean, I've heard it called as the white, the white boys club, you know, the white people's club, that when nobody else is there to, to temper it, some of our worst stuff will come out um, pretty, pretty freely. Yeah, I've also, I've, well, Alyssa looks like she wants to say something. I'll let you go think, first. Thanks. I think there's probably a difference between talking with people who are interested in addressing racism and people who are uh, not wanting to address racism and maybe uh, antagonistic or um, are angry. That's a very different conversation. But I think when you're talking with people who that might be important to them to address racism, I think there is like a comfort level there, but then you might not, you might be reinforcing area, uh, ideas that are not correct, you know, because you don't have that other voice. So, or other voices, but you might be just uh, reinforcing incorrect thoughts, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that. And, and even situations too, right? If, if the conversation would have been calmer, more tempered, more um, equal back and forth, if it wasn't right after some big flashpoint where everybody's, you know, emotions are just on fire <laughs> and, and, and wanting to have a conversation then could look differently than if you were having the conversation when you're, you're already encouraged or trying to step into this space to have the conversation and ready to talk that that could be a lot calmer and more, more equitable in the back and forth um, mm -hmm. of, in that conversation. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Hannah? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I guess I don't completely know what like is uh, right or wrong, but I guess like I, I've, I've led a couple groups of like white only kind of conversations um, and including recent, well, like two at Marquette with some undergrads and then just, um, I personally kind of like needed one at one point in my life, just like needed, like I had a lot of thoughts and I knew that I knew the same thoughts that Erica, you just expressed about like it being like really painful for people of color to have conversations. And I didn't want to like hurt anyone, but I also had like a lot of thoughts in my head that I, I like need to like figure out between like what my family have said and like how to deal with my family and some of the comp complicated conversations we've had to have and um, also just like what I, like where I, who, yeah, who I am and what I am in it. And I'm a little bit younger and, um, it was probably around 20, 
425 when I like really needed those conversations. And so I like had a group of like white people around me so I could just kind of be like, but white people that I like really did trust that they were also trying to like move in the same direction as me. Um, and so I'll say like for myself, I like definitely needed that at a certain point to be able to like be embodied in my whiteness and um, myself and also like, yeah, deal with all the emotions. I was like, but, like knew it wasn't really productive for me to like throw them all at a person of color or like, you know, so I'm mostly leaning on the point of like advocating for those in conversations to be super important for white people to talk about race. Um, mostly because it's invisible, mostly when it isn't an invisible thing in the room when there's white people in the room and to talk about it is like, I think a, also just like a powerful stand, like, hey, race is in the room. Um, and, but also, I also hear the constraints of like, oh, well, maybe there could be like movement towards like problematic like thought and like, um, and like affirming things that are like racist in a certain way. Um, so, yeah, I see the like tension to hold it in, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you brought up family and I think that's another layer, right? There could be something that we're talking about across different races, something that we can talk about within our, our racial or ethnic or cultural group. But what about family? Can you, do you get to points where you're, it's your family, it's your blood. So is it that you just go to a point and then like, we just can't have a conversation anymore because I can't, I don't want to irrevocably sever this relationship with family, you know? So I just can't talk about that with them. And then we just let that be like, is, is that an okay place to be? I can talk about it with other people, just not with family. How, how do you handle that? I can share my personal experience, but in my family, uh, we always talked about racism. Um, that's something I grew up with. I, um, I've told Erica this before, but I grew up outside of Detroit and I was born in 1969. My parents moved to Detroit in 1962. Um, so as a family, like on the outside, I, I lived in a suburb. Um, there was a lot to, to talk about. And uh, my parents were definitely very supportive of addressing racism. My mom was a teacher in Chicago and she taught in Chinatown. So, you know, she would share those experiences, but fast forward into the current um, climate, we can still talk about that, but I have some family members who are more conservative and it get, if it gets into the issue of Black Lives Matter or even George Floyd, that now has become more difficult to talk about um, because it's been politicized. So something that the conversation that we talked about had to do with empathy and caring for others and talking about injustice um, has moved to what side are you on? Right. And all because that was something before it wasn't a political discussion. It was a discussion of right and wrong. <laughs> and that's changed in my family with some of the members of my family.
I, I think that one of the one of the other issues that we come across when you um brought up George Floyd is knowing that the conversation to Hannah's point is not are you racist or are you anti-racist this is a this is a binary and you're one or the other choose a side but having the complex and nuanced conversation of when we're talking about George Floyd I've heard some groups of people who were like why are you um murdering a criminal that's your problem right there and that's why this whole conversation is all about you murdering a criminal right and then trying to show the complexities of that conversation that say if a person did the, a wrong thing a wrong act illegal activity does that mean it's okay to kill them i mean it can't mm -hmm. you acknowledge all of the things can you say he should not have done this other stuff that was bad okay you can say that and have that in a whole different conversation <laughs> you know did he have a police record was there something that was against the law that he did at one time okay and if he were um a white man that had done those same things and other activity that was against the law that, that he engaged in, would you say, okay, so now I can like choke him to death and that's okay, you know? <laughs> so, so the complexity of it, it gets, you have to have time and energy and empathy and humility and patience to sit through all the layers of that conversation. It is not a fast conversation. It is not a one thing or another conversation. And, and it's so complex. So do we have the patience and the time to sit and peel through all of those layers in order to have an appropriate conversation? Yeah. Is, is it in and out? That's it, you know? It's is that a hand up there in the library for us to call on? Up. Oh, nope. Okay. No hands. Right. <laughs> oh, that was my hand. Sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. See, you've yeah. got all the professionals here. We we got this. No problem. <laughs> okay. I didn't know it was my hand. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I really agree with that. The the notion of uh of you know, these are not quick fixes. Uh, they're complicated, they take time, they take patience. And I, I think about it as um, oh shoot, the pragmatism, like what's the most likely possibility of making some progress? Um, and so a head-on, head-butting, face-to-face, knock-em-out conversation, argument with someone may feel kind of gratifying in the moment. It probably will end further conversations and won't change anything. And so, you know, to, to be able to listen really carefully, to ask questions, you know, like, you know, if that were your son, Joe, who had done some illegal things and then was then was in that position, you know, well, what do you think you would feel? You know, just ask some questions um, and to uh, uh, even to share, you know, with the George Floyd experience, I was just, I, I could not stop seeing my son's face in that spot. I just, uh, it was, I mean, I'm, I've been aware of the, the, you know, the horrific violence. But that was the first time my little boy's face showed up. 
and I kept seeing it over and over. And so even to share that experience to say, you know, I, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. Let me tell you how I felt when I saw it. Mm-hmm. But it's the kind of questioning, sharing an I statement or an I story with hopes that you drop a, drop a seed here, you plant a thought there, you, you kind of massage something further along, but you have the opportunity to continue the conversation um, because those family situations are volatile and not only could you drive the person away, you could drive the rest of the family away if they feel like you're just messing up Thanksgiving. You know, so, so true. It's it was hard, it's hard because it, it hurts to let things ride, but how we respond can really make a difference. Yeah. That includes name calling too, right? You can disagree with my position on something, but you start calling me names. Yeah. Uh, that can shut that conversation down super fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I appreciate that perspective of just seeing like the long-term, the long-term like game of it all. Yeah. It's like, there's a, yeah, it's not going away overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my friend Ron, my friend Rhonda just has regularly says to me, Sharon, why do you want the answer to come so fast? (laughs) You know, that's whiteness itself, you know, Uh why do you want it to come so fast? And that and that that leads to another boy, all of this leads to another thing. Another thought about that is when people um, I've seen the example used of coming to class late. So you would appreciate that, right, Sharon? If you if you did not know about the class, you didn't sign up for the class, you're behind whatever it was that got you there late. You show up and then you don't interrupt the whole class and have people want to empathize with you about what your things were. There's a whole class going on. Sit down, get out your books, pay attention and pick up and move. So when you are engaged in the conversation with people, when you get people that are ready, available, have mm-hmm. the mental headspace to have the conversation, sometimes you can still get stuck with the, I have been doing this for almost 50 years. My mom did it. My grandmom did it. I am tired of waiting. So get yourself together, figure it out, fix it. Let's change it all now. And you get people who are coming to the table like, wait a minute. I just got here. I'm trying to sit down and catch up on where we are and, you know, hold on and be patient with me. So even that sometimes with, with groups, groups of people or two people that are desiring to have the conversation, they both feel like they're ready. Dr. King with the fierce urgency of now, now he said that 50 some odd years ago and so I feel like we're behind and we need to go. So how do you, how do you, I guess, meld that? Cause we want to try to have some solutions here too, right? We don't want to identify all of the problems and then say, well, I guess y'all better fix it. How do you deal with that problem? I I'm ready. I'm willing, mm-hmm. but we should take it slow. And I'm like, slow is done. Slow is gone. <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Lisa. Well, kind of thinking with that, that, uh, I think you have a lot of people who haven't actually physically seen the effects of racism. And I think you can live in white dominated areas. And I think it changes if you can see how other people are living. Um, And I don't know if that, it up but I think people do 
need to see the physical effects of racism. And I, I, I think that can help move it forward. But I think as long as people keep themselves isolated, it, mm -hmm. it, it really is hard to move forward. But I think part of that is connecting people to the realities, you know, whether, uh, you know, it's redlining and going into the city and showing them the physical effects of red redlining, you know, uh, or really digging deep into a legal issue and, and seeing how people are actually treated in that situation. But I think people aren't going to move forward unless they have a real connection somehow. <laughs> Got to connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. From a teacher's perspective, I think about looking out into the classroom and realizing that every kid's in a different place. And so the rate at which we cover material or, or assignments are made or whatever, it, it varies by kid. Um, and so when I look at the, you know, the white community, my white friends and family and, and just the sea of white around, um, I, I need to remember they're all in different places too. And so I can find people who need that slower, let's drive into the city and see some stuff thing. And then I can also find other people at other times who are saying, yep, I'm on board, let's go. You know, I'm in a group right now that's black and white in a church talking about reparations. And like, that's a different group. That's that sounds like a fun group there. Mm -hmm. That, that yeah, must have some good brilliant. conversation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And but that's a different group of people than the folks who are going, well, what do you mean I can't be colorblind? I thought that's what Martin Luther King wanted, you know, <laughs> and so a differentiation, you know, to say who is where's my audience? How can I move each audience member a little further along? And there are going to be some who are going to like they're moving me along. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. So slow is not the answer, but pacing for some people will be different than for other people. And so kind of recognizing that. Um, I think some of us are gifted and called to, to bring in the, the slower learners up and others are called to be out there, you know, marching in the front of the line. Um, and hopefully all of us get a finger in lots of places, but anyway, yeah. That, that takes me to the, um, and Elisa, I'm sure you've talked about this, you know, all the different parts of the body that need to do things to make something happen. So if we if we talk about what are solutions, how do we fix it? How do you become a part of the change you want to see? I think one of those things is not everybody has to fit into a certain category to prove that mm -hmm. they are doing the work to help um, um, end racism, right? Everybody is not marching and protesting but the ones that are, are doing a thing and they're moving a needle. There are people who are sitting in their book discussions and are still fairly isolated. They may not be engaging with a lot of others yet, but that's their time to learn and grow. And that's a part of their work on the journey to end racism, that, that people are doing different things. Some people are inside of systems, mm -hmm. trying to make changes to those systems by being a part of that system and showing that it has to change, it has to change and doing that. And they're doing a part. There's not only one way 
to do the work. And I think that for those of us who are doing it, sometimes that can trip us up. You already have the choir that you're preaching to, but it's not good enough if you're not doing this. So your way is invalid. You know, we've got to be careful about those those kind of, of things that can pop up that's happening all within people who are on the same, you know, the on the same journey and knocking each other down as they go because you're not doing it the way I'm doing it. Therefore, your way is not right. So th- those solutions, we've got to remember to consider that and working together always sounds nice when you say it, but what does it look like? What does it look like if you are out there protesting and saying, this is the way, and this is the way we affect change. If you're someone on the side that says, that's not the way to do it. Well, you know, that's how we got uh, uh, some of the 1968 fair housing laws, right? Are you saying that them walking the streets for 200 days didn't get somebody, even if they weren't sincere to say, what do we have to do to make them stop? (laughs) So that's, that's a way that that works. And, and all of those ways are good. How do you get people who are doing different things to work together so that we're not getting in each other's way or, or downplaying another person's way of doing things? My first reaction, it sounds like there's some Christian <laughs> folks around here, but um you know, it's the idea of like us being a body and um, seeing the value of people's work in every aspect. And the older they get, I realize the uh, limit was well, not, it's not a limited supply of energy. Just, there's more like, uh, you know, there's just so much to do all the time. And so it's just like, oh, okay. You know, if, if this person wants to devote their life to this and be, you know, organizing protests, or if they want to be, yeah, like a, a friend who does, yeah, actually, this is a, I'm quite proud of this, the group that I started, my first group that I started about race, one of the girls works at Urban Ecology Center, women, I should say, and she uh, worked really hard with um, Dr. Liston and Ubuntu Research to create an anti-racism statement for the Urban Ecology Center. Another one of them organizes the Black Lives Are Sacred events. Um, and then another one of them is, um, well, she's just mostly just like does like a lot of participation in different groups. And yeah, it's just cool to see, you know, it's all, and I like have done, continue to do more groups for white people to talk about race. And so um, I don't have time. Well, yeah, I could, I could make time, but like, I'm grateful that Mary is organizing the Black Lives of Sacred events. Um, and I'm so grateful um, Kirsten's doing them. You know, I don't work at Urban Ecology Center, so I'm not going to be, you know, invested in their their program. So, yeah, it's just it's so necessary. I mean, so necessary that there's people. The more work is to me better, and um, I think maybe, yeah, I'm nothing but grateful for that. I don't know. Yeah. 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 I don't like using military imagery, but darn, this is a war with many fronts. You know, and we need. We need soldiers and foot soldiers and commanders in so many different places being active. And cooks and, and so, uh, yeah, that's right. And mechanics. Supply chain. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the bigger the army, the better it is. 
And even and to, to Hannah's point again, too, I so I am a Christian and in doing the work with so many other groups of people, there are times when I see Christian folks who were like, well, yes, we should do this anti-racism work, but we don't do things like they do. They're not Christians. Okay. <laughs> And if this is the body, if this is the community, we are not supposed to all be the same. So are you not going to do work? Um, I mean, we try for, for Bridge the Divide, we've been trying to get some interfaith groups together because again, I think people, they stop themselves. Well, sure, I would do that if that was a Christian group. I would do that if that was a Jewish group. Yeah. I would do that if we had a Muslim group. Okay, well, why, why can't we all do this together <laughs> if we have some of those common threads that we're working on? I've even had some groups of people that I've been in that have had atheists in the group, Jewish folks in the group mm -hmm. that were surprised that I was a Christian. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast mm -hmm. about how I believe Christians should show up in this world and how people should should see the good in all of us and yeah. not be surprised because I am doing things that have to do with race and talking about racial justice because they hadn't seen Christians doing that, you know? And so I, I think the common, whatever our common threads are, we are having several layers of discussions with school boards, you know, and school boards across Wisconsin are just fire fire everywhere you know but if you actually sat and I did this I looked at a couple of uh, social media kind of ads that said we are just moms looking out for the best for our kids wait we're not we are also moms looking out for the best for our kids you know we just want to have some accountability and people to hear us well wait we are trying to get accountability and people to hear us, you know? So if we could actually look at those things more than drawing the lines in the sand to say, well, ultimately my cause is right and yours is wrong, we could probably find some overlap that could then launch another, you know, set of partnerships or at least listening with your ears open to people rather than, you know, like I said, drawing your line in the sand and turning your backs on people because it's the us and them and neither the twain shall meet, you know, maybe there are some things there in common. And if we were listening well to each other's stories and, and perspectives, we could see that we had these things in common. But right now we can't even see that we have this common ground because it's us and them and I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say. You could be right, but I don't care. I'm not listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like the oh you I, go. Okay. I think like seeing it as relationship building is super important and like rate like um you know building your, what are you building? You're not you're, you're tearing white supremacy down, right? Tear it down but also like, what are you building? And I think that's like such a, if, if relationships and um, uh, are like the key centerpiece and relationships that want redemption, that want restoration, you know, that's, it's hard, it's hard to do that. It's harder, it's harder, easier, easier said than done. But you know, that's, that's the, you know, the dream. And I think 
to have moments of both of those happening at the same time, I think are important. And I think what you were referring to too, Erica, is uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, I think we're seeing major shifts in traditional institutions of the 20th century. And Christianity certainly has been a part of that in the United States. How we define ourselves as Christians uh, is very institutionally. And there's been good things with that. And um, there's been some difficult things with that. But I think part of that institutional aspect uh, can disconnect us um, because it kind of created uh, especially when I think of the 50s, uh, like a club that you belong to. And so that excludes people, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, never mind the racism that's a part of that institution. So there's a lot going on with that. But I think just overall, many of the institutions that were developed in the 20th century, um, I think the way things were done kind of contribute to us being disconnected. Yeah. And I think that requires some different ways of thinking of how we relate to each other and how we look at community. Um, but I think our vision has been a little bit limited and, um, and I think we're in a period of great change with that. Yeah, I hope so. So, and I, when I hear that, I think this is directly connected to race because we're talking about whiteness in the church. You know, I, I, I asked my son for a book for Christmas. It's called White Too Long. And it's talking about the history of white supremacy forming the Christian church. Um, and one of the hallmarks of that white supremacy is it's a very, very restricted view of who God values, mm. you know? And so to say, well, God would have me work with those Muslims or those Jewish people or those right. whatever, that's like, well, no, no, wait a minute. No, my definition of God, God values me, i.e. white people. Uh, never say that out loud. None of them would say that out loud, but that's at the heart of it. Yeah. It is a, a white supremacist view of a very narrow, limited God. And that's part of what we, I hope you're right, Elisa. I hope that this is a season where that begins to change. And uh, we can kick open that door and say, oh my gosh, God is so much bigger than my little, you know, Baptist or Presbyterian or, you know, AME or whatever church experience. God's bigger. God's in those experiences, but God's bigger than those experiences and more people are included. And the, the definition of the definition of community, the definition of love, if we, as Bridge the Divide are always saying, we need to love each other well. And then we follow that with what we see love is. Love is not just patting someone on the back or affirming mm -hmm. them for that good thing that they're doing. Love is also saying, I heard that and that's a problematic because how can I help you see that and get yeah. better at that? And, and in my vision, that is ultimately what love is because if I didn't love you or didn't care what you did or what you said or how you interacted then why would I engage with you to go oh I I think this is wrong and this is why I'm, you can do that better if I didn't love you and want that better for you then I could just turn my back and say well 
somebody's going to get them later because they're, <laughs> they're going to hear that they said that and boy, they're going to get them, you know? So, so what is love? What is community? What is being a community of people? What is being in community with people? Not only the ones that look like you or think like you um, or worship like you, but this community is all of us together, working together, and how can we do that for the betterment of all and not take that and label it, well, now you are pushing this thing because that's what that means. No, we're, we're trying to talk through these definitions so we can get some of the common language and common understanding. And then we can move through that together, hopefully pushing it further and faster because we're all doing it. Um, rather than feeling like we are working against someone who is countering us because they don't understand what we mean by community or they don't understand what love is or we just haven't talked enough to get the common language. If we can understand the language, then we'll know that we're talking about the same thing. And and I, I would I love for that to happen, but I, I also believe that that conversation is tiring. It is exhausting. And of course, the more people we have having the conversation doesn't mean the same five people have to have that conversation. And maybe it won't feel so exhausting, you know? But I do want to make sure that for our community that's listening, some that are new listening, newly listening to us, some that are, you know, been hanging with our community for the last four years, that we try to get something some next steps out there. So if you all could help me with, you're talking to a new person that is now just coming into the classroom late. <laughs> they're, they're way behind, you know, what can you offer them about this scary conversation that some have told them that it is? What can we tell them to help encourage them to be a part of the conversation? And what can we tell them or recommend that they do to get started if they're like, okay, they're not all so bad because we're not, you know, what, what do we tell them? How do we encourage them to, to keep this, this uh, conversation going? You're asking us. Yes. <laughs> well, actually what I was thinking, Erica, was before, before the, what do you tell them to do? I was thinking one of the things is, is the attitude that I bring toward them. You know, yes. the, the loving attitude, the empathetic attitude, the, uh, uh, committed to people's well-being attitude, which all leads to growth around racial equity. And so that's my part of at, approaching that, you know, the new, newcomer to class with that kind of an attitude versus mm -hmm. a why are you late attitude. Um, and the other one that you said, I just, I think is so crucial. And that is to say, let's just talk about some of the definitions. Are we talking, when I say racism and you say racism, are we doing this? Yes. You know, or even when I say race and you say race, are we doing this? So can we let's talk about some common definitions um, so that when we have our conversations and disagree, we at least know what we're disagreeing on. You know, right. we're not talking past each other. So that's that was what I thought of as you were speaking, that it's a those are two things that I think are important. Um, and then we can go to other people's ideas of what they can then tell. Yes. Them what do y'all what do y'all think? I don't know. I think like listen to that a core gut. I, I, I kind of hesitate saying that, but like kind of listening to that core gut inside of yourself of like, you know, maybe there is something 
something wrong. Then also just like being curious of like, well, where is my role in it to create the world that is, you know, leaning towards more right. And so I think that is probably, you know, we, you know, is there something small that could be done? You know, I, I believe in the impact of ordinary humans mm -hmm. in relationships. And so, you know, even when it's overwhelming and big, it is, but also like, you know, we all have a power within us to make changes even in small ways. And just to, um, I would encourage maybe just to talk to a close friend or talk to somebody who you know might really um, be interested in those conversations. You can reach out to me if you need to. Um, and because like, it's confusing sometimes and it's overwhelming that feeling of like, what can be done, but like, just know that there is, you know, the more you experimented, I, I, something, sorry, now I'm talking a lot, but something I would say to people after George Floyd, people, my friends calling me and just be like, Hey, just like, this is great that people are wanting to have this conversation, but it's like a whole new identity to try on. Mm -hmm. And I think that was part of the problem with me is like, this is a, being anti-racist is a whole identity that, and being, um, uh, understanding my how I'm being anti-racist uh, racist as an embodied white person right is a whole identity and I need to like experiment and play with that and that does not mean everything I do is going to be right it probably isn't and like I just like but I have to be committed to the journey of it otherwise like you know I do one thing wrong and then I clamor up and like come back into a little shell and like be like a little fragile like fragile and scared and like fragile and scared completely part of the process but like <laughs> you know it's just no one wants to live their whole life fragile and scared so right. you know but don't you know you but and you are stronger you are stronger than you think that you are that's my yeah so right I I like that and I like the idea of celebrating the small wins you know because otherwise it can seem truly hopeless like we are not making any progress anywhere if I go back to my my um my relationship with our, our school board, you know, I can both, we talk about both and a lot, I can both demand accountability and transparency and, and calling them on their stuff and celebrate that finally for 2022, we have uh, Dr. King's uh, holiday on the calendar and a day off just like you're going to get off for president's day. Right. I can, I can say that is <laughs> that small win that, you know, I think maybe should have been a win a while ago, but, but it's here now and they, and they did it. And I've got to say, yeah, that's great. Now what next now keep going, <laughs> but, but taking a little bit of time to celebrate when there is something good or, or moving closer to that, that arc towards justice and saying, Yep, that was good. And now keep going. <laughs> what do you think, Elisa? I'm thinking about uh, grassroots organizing and that you can't really expect any change unless people care deeply about what they're fighting for. So I guess people who are interested in learning, I think I'd encourage them to have 
empathy and to listen and to look at how the issues might affect their community, um, their community that they live in, but the larger community. Um, and perhaps, you know, just think about the world that they would like to, to live in. But if people don't feel connected, they won't fight for something. So they need to care. So getting involved in ways where they can develop some sense of caring. Great. This is a, 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 it's sort of a funny way of approaching it, but 25 years ago when, when my husband and I were, we were both in graduate school, we were both dirt poor uh, and had two little kids. And, uh, and so Friday night was like dinner theater, you know, like, five dollar pizza and and a movie from blockbuster and so for at least a year our commitment was that every every movie that we watched on that friday or saturday night was about a racial group other than our own it featured black actors and black stories and black history um and then we'd expanded into asian and native american and and we, we we explored but we learned a lot of history and we learned a lot of experience you know, kind of like vicariously peering into our little box. Um, but the other thing that we learned was some empathy and, and connection, a human connection, because this wasn't just reading a history book. This was like kind of watching people acting it out, living it out and seeing the pain on their faces or the victory in their, you know, shoulders as they marched across the bridge. Um, that was really helpful. And I, I, I'm always grateful that we were able to, to have that time just to kind of, peek into somebody else's world and learn to care about it. It was helpful. I, I like with, that. I agree with that, Sharon. I think I believe in the power of the arts, mm -hmm. you know, so whether that's a movie, a very, very good book or art, and, and we're really lucky in our area. Um, we have multiple museums who have been um, highlighting people of color in the exhibitions um, and that can be a, a great way to connect with people is, is through the arts but we, we have a lot of those resources in, in, in the community yeah including our very own cedarburg public library right <laughs> how is it that you get to have a place where you can find the story where someone else tells you their story it's not you telling them what their story is. It's not you repeating the myths that you have heard about the other or the them. You have these libraries that are the hubs of our communities and you can go in and learn and travel and see and hear other folks' experiences. So, it, so it's, it's really hard sometimes when you hear the, well, I don't have proximity to, um, Native American people, to Asian American people, to, you know, uh, South American people. I don't know. I haven't seen. I, we have got our hands on these libraries that have made the world so much smaller. It's right there. So we, you have to, with back to the intentionality, you've got to be intentional and you've got to search out those experiences. And, and then once you have heard them or seen them, don't don't discount somebody else's experience well that's not how it really is 
really? Mm -hmm. That's somebody telling you their story. So you need to hear their story and listen to their story. So I, I would encourage everyone, I mean, obviously, obviously come to our Cedarburg Public Library in our little town because we think it's great, but you have libraries everywhere. Use them, um, learn from them, grow with them. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's easier than we want to make it out to be, um, to make that, that problem a little bit easier to solve by accessing other people's stories. Yeah. So thank you all so very much for joining me in this conversation. It was fantastic. It obviously is the beginning for some. It's right in the middle of the journey for some, but it's never the end. We've got to keep our foot on the gas. It's a, we've got a long way to go and a lot, lot more things that we can learn. Even for those of us that think we, we have learned a lot and been through a lot, there's so much more to learn and we're never gonna get to do it if we, if we can't be in community with other people. Um, supporting the journey and supporting each other on the journey. And I appreciate you being with us here at Bridge the Divide, supporting us um, as we continue. There is always more. We talked about Dr. King's birthday coming up. My friend Rhonda Hill and from Race and Faith has a uh, something to say, continued conversations that's happening on MLK weekend. So um, we have an interfaith Dr. King program that uh, Ozaki County partners are going to be doing. We have those things on our um, Facebook page. We will share things on Instagram. Our website, bridgethedivide.life. We have things on the calendar there that we will be adding. So make the decision to be a part of this journey and then take a step. And there's so many things out there. We appreciate you allowing us to be one of those things, sharing with you. Um, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much to our guests. Thank you so much to the Bridge community. Have a fantastic day. Mm -hmm.